Welcome back to Plenary Session. Today, I stopped by the office. I stopped by the office at UCSF, and I had a discussion with Dr. Tom Newman. He is Professor Emeritus here at UCSF. He was a practicing pediatrician. He is an evidence-based medicine expert. He's a clinical epidemiologist. He's a superb teacher. We have a discussion about public health, about a little bit about clinical epidemiology. In the discussion, he talks about a YouTube video that of mine that he had watched. He had a bone to pick with me. <laughs> Something about it he didn't like, 100%. And it was a good discussion, I think. Before I play the discussion, since you audio listeners may not have seen the video, I think I'll give you the audio for the video so you'll know what we're talking about. This was a provocative video, I think, but also a truthful video, I think, but you'll hear what we say about it. It's about public health, lying about natural immunity. So today's episode, I'm going to play the audio track of this thing. It's only going to be like 17 minutes. Then you're going to hear our discussion about it. And hopefully soon you hear Tom Newman again, and we're going to do some stuff together that we've been planning, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So on that positive note, this is what you get on Plenary Session. You get pretty much whatever I want you to get because, you know, if you don't like it, you can switch the episode. I'm going to be back with more oncology stuff. I got to talk about Rucaparib. I got to talk about Karma 3. A lot to say there. Rucaparib, lousy control arm, inappropriate use of crossover, OS differences null. Of course, they're going to fault that on crossover, but uh, the equally plausible explanation is it doesn't do that much. Anyway, the PFS benefit is scant. It's really a terrible study. Karma 3, the control arm severely underperforms. They do so, so badly that you really have to wonder what the hell was going on in that study. They underperform even their own power calculation. Pathetic. These studies, of course, are just trying to move these drugs up. They don't really help patients. They don't help anybody except maybe the trial of CVs, which is really what the goal is in this business, isn't it? It's really the goal, the trial of CVs, the trial of Twitter account. That's really the that's really the goal, it seems. So I'll be back with that. I'm going to hit both of those pretty hard. Right now, you're going to talk about natural immunity, the Lancet, meta-regression study, my favorite. I've done a lot of that stuff. And then a discussion with Dr. Tom Newman. We'll be back with future episodes, and it's going to be, hopefully, still your number one go-to podcast. All right. Until next time. Wait. Wait, 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 wait. Before I cut, I need to tell you about developed drugs at substack.com. Let me pull it up right now because you need to subscribe to developeddrugs.substack.com. This is a new substack. This isn't Vinay Prasad's observations and thoughts. It's not going to be about COVID. By the way, there's some good stuff there. Actually, this, you know, Eric Topol made such a horrific tweet. But anyway, that's there. Sensible Medicine, of course, is a broad general medical interest podcast. This is developeddrugs.substack.com. Go check it out. We got PSMA PET scans. We got problems with Triton 3. This is going to be the drug development letter. It's going to be the drug development letter. It's going to be where we just talk about cancer drug development. It's going to be tied to plenary session. Every paper we publish, we're going to try to cover on this. It's going to be, you know, tons of useful content. Everything that is late phase, practice changing, clinical practice will be freely available. We're going to be thinking about what we're going to do with early phase stuff in the future. But right now, all free, sign up, free account. You're going to love it. If you like plenary session podcasts, you're going to love developdrugs.substack.com. I run it. You know, what more do you want? Okay. And on that positive note, we're going to turn to the YouTube presentation. Then the discussion where I get a piece of Tom Newman's mind. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the channel. Well, the verdict is in. Public health lied. The institutions of public health have been caught in a great and terrible lie. The CDC, the FDA, the White House, and all of the state and local public health agencies all shared the same lie. And this is an unusual lie because the best available evidence all along the way constantly undermined the lie. In fact, immunology and common sense undermine that lie. What is the lie? The lie is that natural infection counts for nothing. The lie is that we need the exact same vaccine policy in somebody who's had and recovered from COVID-19 than somebody who's never had it at all. Now, many of us saw this lie all along the way. We thought we really need to focus our efforts in vaccination on making sure people who have never had COVID-19 and who are vulnerable get the vaccine. We don't need to waste our breath on 20-year-olds who've already had COVID-19. And yet, this White House had an unofficial poll. This has been reported by Paul Offit now two times because he participated in this poll. They asked several experts privately, should we count natural immunity as perhaps one or two vaccination doses? And the vote was narrowly, we should count it as nothing. We should give no credit to prior immunity. I want to say one thing off the bat. This is not a video about whether or not it's better to meet the virus for the first time without any vaccines or better to meet it after vaccination. That's not this video. This video is for the fact that despite our best intentions, many, many Americans got COVID-19 before vaccines were available and many of them got it before they were available for their demographic and their group. Those people had COVID, they recovered from COVID. Some of them are even nurses and doctors who got it on in the line of duty. And they were compelled, they were recommended, they were told that they ought to get the COVID-19 vaccine. It was benefiting them, it was benefiting others. The claim it was benefiting others was always spurious, but the idea that it was benefiting them and that they ought to be mandated to get it, that was what public health said. This is really problematic. The idea that they needed it, the idea that their risk was so high that they could benefit. That's what this paper takes a look at. This comes out in The Lancet this week. The headlines already read, immunity acquired from COVID infection is as protective as vaccination, a study finds. Well, this study is a compilation of studies that have existed before. So it's not news for those of us who've been following along. It is a systematic review and meta-analysis. It's called Pass SARS-CoV-2 Infection Protection Against Reinfection. And it's by the COVID-19 forecasting team. You know, I don't agree with everything they've done, but... I think I read through this document and it seems pretty reasonable. This is going to be Evidence Public Health Live. I'm going to walk you through the paper. Let's take a look. First of all, the authors open their introduction by acknowledging that the U.S. is a very unusual place to not give any credit at all for having had COVID-19. They say the EU COVID-19 COVID certificate allowed those with documented infection within the past 180 days. By the way, that's also pretty stupid. It should have been longer than that, but at least they have something to qualify for the certificate alongside individuals whose last vaccine dose was within 14 days and 270 days. In other words, they gave you some credit. Wasn't perfect, but they gave you some credit in the EU because they're not totally terrible at the job. By contrast, the United States regulations, among others, required non-citizens to be fully vaccinated to even travel to the U.S. Unvaccinated non-citizens with a past documented infection are not able to even enter the country. Novak Djokovic couldn't win a few more titles because of this brain-dead policy set by very bad policymakers. It doesn't matter if they've had COVID-19. Novak Djokovic has had COVID-19 at least twice. I think that's what the news reports say. He has chosen not to be vaccinated. Well, this is going to apply to the Novak Djokovic of the world. First of all, we have to even acknowledge, even before you see these results, this policy was silly because 
It would only make sense to exclude some people from the country if by having them here, we put others at risk. That's not the case because it turns out, I hate to break it to you, even with Novak Djokovic out of the country, SARS-CoV-2 was still spreading inside the country. Yeah, that's true. SARS-CoV-2 didn't require elite tennis players to really set it off in the U.S. It was already going full steam ahead. Didn't need Novak Djokovic. Didn't need Nadal. Federer doesn't need a Federer. We got plenty of people who can spread it. And some of those people, many of those people, now most of those people are vaccinated. That's right. The vaccine can't halt transmission. That is a big problem that they knew in 2021 before the mandates really kicked in. That was a ethical prerequisite to compel a third party. But they went beyond that. They've created a new ethical rule, which is I can compel you to do it if I think it's in your best interest. Well, this paper is going to show that even that is wrong. That ethical rule is problematic because by that logic, you can compel me to take antihypertensives and statins if you so believe that it has a survival benefit. And I think that's not what society has allowed. Historically, there is some dialogue to be had if there is a benefit to third parties, but if there's no benefit to third parties, there's no dialogue to be had. But even if there were a benefit to third parties, I think in this particular case, I wouldn't have done, and I've written many essays on that in the heat of the moment. You can go check my pinned tweet and see my history. So this is why they're doing it. What do they do? This is a systematic review, a meta-regression sort of study. I won't bore you with all the technical details, but what I will show you is this sort of heat map. This heat map shows you that <clears throat> they're looking at, depending on which strain of COVID-19 you got, how many studies document subsequent reinfection, whether those reinfections are symptomatic, you got that runny nose and cough, and whether they're severe, that they actually require, you know, the, that, that they actually are, are severe infection, may require oxygen, may require hospitalization, that it's really something problematic. And I think we have to remember something right off the bat, that in my mind, the only question here is once you've had COVID-19 and recovered from COVID-19, and once you recognize that there's nothing on planet Earth that can stop reinfection, neither antecedent infection nor vaccination, which we learned pretty quickly, we should have known that because coronaviruses, of course, keep reinfecting us. That's kind of a clue that it was going to happen. Once you recognize that fact, then the end point of whatever mandates you have cannot be avoiding a cold. It's got to be postponing severe disease. Are they willing to postpone, delay, and avert severe disease? And if you're not doing that, then there's no reason to be engaging in whatever booster plans you've got. Severe disease is the only thing that I think matters in this paper, so we're going to take a closer look. The first thing to note is this is a pooled estimate, sort of a relative risk reduction that is color-coded. Blue means that it's pretty good. And you can see protection against reinfection, it vacillates, and of course, you know, some of these variants don't do as much as others. Um, protection against symptomatic disease has a range 44 to 87%. But look at the last column, protection against severe disease. When you have COVID and recover from COVID, you are very well protected against severe disease. These are studies of unvaccinated people who've had COVID-19 against unvaccinated people who haven't had COVID-19. It can also include studies where people have been vaccinated, but it adjusts for vaccination to ask what is the protection delivered by prior COVID-19. And you see protection against severe disease from prior COVID-19 in the C column of this table is huge. It's huge. It's pretty big. It's pretty big. And with numbers like that, it turns COVID-19 into a fearsome pandemic, into just a run-of-the-mill respiratory virus. That's what it tells you. Once you've had it and recovered, if you're ever going to get it again, it's just going to be like any of the other respiratory viruses we've lived with for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. That's all it's telling you in this column. 
This is another key figure where, because they're doing meta regression, they can actually show it over time. This is time since original infection, and this is the protection you're afforded for severe disease broken out by the type of the strain of COVID-19. And what you see in panels E and F of this figure, which I have selected because these are the most important panels, is it's tremendous. Having had and recovered from COVID-19 is tremendous protection. Having had and recovered from COVID-19 is tremendous protection against getting COVID-19 again and getting very sick from it. Is it going to be perfect protection against getting COVID-19 again? No. But you know what? You're going to get it many, many times if you plan on being around this planet for a while. Just like you're going to get rhinovirus and RSV and coronavirus, the original four strains. Okay? You're just going to get those things many times. What we care about with severe disease and what this shows you is these people, you can let them go once they've had and recovered. You don't need to badger them. You don't need to hound them. You certainly ought not fire them. You can give them credit on a pass. You don't need to pursue them doggedly unless... You're a zealot that doesn't understand science, and that's what we got. This is the broader figure. This is the full figure three with all the pains. It's showing you any reinfection, symptomatic disease, and severe disease. And of course, it's not going to be durable against any reinfection. As I've already said, be prepared. You're going to keep getting colds for the rest of your life. But what is important is you're not going to be facing the initial COVID-19, what we really feared, what led us to react. So in some cases acceptably, but in many cases, foolish and irrationally. Here again, I show, this is a very interesting figure, a comparison of AZ, AZ plus Pfizer booster, Moderna, Pfizer, and BioNTech, which is the Pfizer vaccine, Pfizer plus Pfizer booster, AZ plus AZ booster, J&J, &J, past infection, Pfizer and Moderna, past infection is green, and it is showing you the protection against severe disease you get from vaccination. Those are all those other colored lines, and prior infection without vaccination. And you know what it shows you crystal clear is it's all about the same. In other words, they should get every bit as much credit as somebody who's been vaccinated. In other words, anybody who was fired who had COVID-19 recovered, who decided not to get vaccination should not have been fired because they also can transmit just like the person who's vaccinated can also transmit and they are equally well protected going forward. And that I think is where we're going to come to in this this is the broader, looking at both infection, symptomatic disease, the broader pain. And it really shows you that no matter what you do, you're going to get it again, okay? If you had it, you're going to get it. And if you haven't had it and got a vaccine, you're going to get it. I mean, all roads lead to getting it again. That's the nature of life. I mean, what do you want? You want to live for 70, 80, 90, 100 years and not get colds? Well, you know what? You're born in the wrong body in the wrong world. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You should have been an alien life form on another planet, but respiratory viruses are part and parcel of living in this world. And you know what? That's okay. That's acceptable. They're not the end of the world. For my whole life, nobody made a big deal out of it. Now, suddenly, they all want to wear N95s in the grocery store because they don't want a cold. And that's ridiculous, I think. We got to get back to the way it was. So conclusion of this meta-regression I mean, one, we have to acknowledge, this is not new information. The news is like, oh, new study shows. A new study that's a systematic review is a study of older studies. All the data was there. NBC, you just don't read the data. You don't read the data, and you have a very skewed sort of set of commenters, and that's why you screwed it up. The key message is public health lied. They lied that natural immunity doesn't count for anything. They said it counts for nothing when it counts for exactly the same for the endpoint that matters as vaccination. Not only should people have the EU card was in the right direction, it should have been really, if you've ever had COVID and recovered, you're good, go out there, live your life. And if you've not had COVID and you're at a high risk, 
That's the group we're really going to target for vaccination and boosting. Should have just been that simple. Public health lied. It's a big lie. I don't think I'm, I'm not even stating the gravity of the lie. I mean, there are people who were fired. There are professors who were fired from their job because they had had COVID-19 recovery. They didn't want to get the vaccine. We're not, we're really not helping. We're just dividing people over this. We're not helping anybody. We're not helping any other people in that person's office. We're not even helping them. We are just, you know, punishing them because we were too stupid to have a rational policy. I mean, I think those people are owed an apology. They're owed back pay. They need to be hired back. If we're going to heal from this, we have to acknowledge that these people have been wronged. I think if I, I, I wasn't a nurse who got COVID um, and I didn't, you know, I, quit, I wasn't fired because I declined the vaccine. I was working throughout the hospital. Not to my knowledge, I didn't get COVID pre-vaccine. Got the vaccine and moved on with my life. And I got some unnecessary boosters because I didn't want to lose my job. I was also wronged a little bit. But the person who was really wronged was the nurse who got it in 2020 and then they were fired because they didn't want to get the vaccine. That's really, come on, it's really despicable. I think those people should be sent a handwritten letter and an apology, I think. I really do. I mean, I think you really got to start apologizing to these people. And in fact, begging a little bit for forgiveness if you ever want to claim credibility. Again, I don't think they're going to do that. And that's why I think they're not going to ever have credibility again. Paul Offit. Paul Offit says these decisions stemmed from a private vote. That private vote was held under the auspices of the White House. Vivek Murthy was there per what Paul Offit has said in the media coverage. We need a congressional investigation of that vote. We need to know who was there, how this decision was made. This should not have been a decision made behind closed doors. It should have been a decision that many, many people participated in, including the body politic. It's a great failure. This decision is a great failure. Finally, I think indemnifying vaccine manufacturers may have made sense in 1999 and 2004. I don't think it makes sense anymore, not for this vaccine under EUA. I think individuals, particularly young men in college, who got myocarditis after a vaccine mandate, who had already had and recovered from COVID-19, should be legally entitled to both sue the manufacturer of the vaccine and to sue their schools because they have suffered an adverse event. If they were reluctant to get vaccinated after having and recovered from COVID-19, they're a 20-year-old man, and they go to some liberal arts school where they're you know, probably not doing a great job at educating them because they were not good at thinking themselves. If they got myocarditis from that mandate, they should be able to litigate everyone involved. I would love to see somebody in Congress put forward legislate legislation to take away this indemnification, take away these protections and let people be litigated. This is America. Sometimes you solve things politically, but oftentimes you solve things in the courts. And I'm not a fan of frivolous lawsuits. I don't like them at all. This is not a frivolous lawsuit. You have some mid-level manager, some summer camp in upstate New York, setting policies that are above their pay grade, and they're causing some very rarely, maybe even one in 10K, likely. That's the Katie Sharp's recommendation. If they have the right age group, one in 10K, they're causing some malady and doing it in somebody who had already had COVID-19. They're practicing medicine without a license. They're playing a dangerous game. They should be litigated for that. They need to be litigated. Don't teach other summer camps. Don't do this. If you, you can't just make up whatever mandates you want, it will really send a message. They have to be litigated. I think it's really important. Litigate them. They need to be all those protections taken away. And the most important thing is public health lied. And if there was ever something, you know, I really think we are so, it's so bad. If there is a major public health disaster in the next few years, there's going to be, no one will do anything. I mean, I think half the country is just totally signed off. They've lost all trust. It is going to be very contentious. You won't be able to do anything. Um, and uh, they won't participate. Uh, and they may even oppose you or thwart you. I think the whole country may even tear itself apart. And that's, who's the cause of that? Is it really Joe Rogan? It's not Joe Rogan. It's not, even though I disagreed substantively with many people he had on, and I wrote an article in Unheard Magazine about that, but it's not him. 
It's the CDC, the FDA, the White House. It's the institutions, Nyad, it's Fauci, it's the people who were part of the auspices of government who held power and they lied. They said things with certainty that they didn't have. Evidence gradually accumulated, making it so blatantly obvious they were lying. They never recanted, they never changed their policy, they never apologized, they never begged forgiveness. And I think those are the real failures and that's why no one's gonna trust it. So those are my thoughts, public health. It's a disaster. I mean, it's really, it's, I, I think many people are living in their bubble. They're surrounded by, in my line of work mostly, they're surrounded by like-minded people who think, yeah, we tried our best and we kind of got close. You really didn't try your, I mean, and if that's your best, you're not good. That's what fact number one. But you didn't try your best because you tried to ostracize and silence people who had other points of view. You didn't have any debates. You said Jay Bhattacharya was a fringe epidemiologist. You marginalized people. You took over the media. You brought them under your hand. You made it about politics. It's all bad. And you made the wrong call. Many, many wrong calls. I've detailed that in my Substack post from today. Vinay Prasad's observations and thoughts. You should subscribe. You'll get some good stuff there. So you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment comment is fun. Leave a message. Um, follow me on Substack. You're going to like that. Plenary session, but it really is mostly oncology drug products. Oh, but we got a really good, we got this guy, Mike uh, Putman. He also did a video, put the video on this channel. You know, he said that people disagree with you. I'm going to come ask you some tough questions. No preparation. I just gotten off my bike. That's why I was wearing that outfit. And uh, it's good. It's worth your time. Sensible Medicine podcast. Subscribe to that. Check out Sensible Medicine. And uh, soon I'll have a new update for you. It's almost ready. All right, until next time. <clears throat> Welcome back. I'm sitting here at UCSF Mission Bay, joined by Dr. Tom Newman. Tom Newman is Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. He is a consummate teacher of epidemiology. He's also a pediatrician by training and formerly a practicing pediatrician here at UCSF. And uh, Tom, it's a pleasure to have you join again on the show. I think you've been here once before. Yes, I was uh, promoting our book, Evidence-Based Diagnosis, uh, second edition, <laughs> which and I'm going to promote again. Good. And, and, and you teach in your class. Know, we, we, uh, this, this was a meeting that we set up. We were going to talk about teaching med students, and I come to this conference room, and Vinay has uh, all of this microphone equipment <laughs> <laughs> set up and says, oh, why don't we record this? Um, yeah, because it so, started with you saying you watched some of my videos and you had a bone to pick with me. No, I just said I didn't agree with everything you said, but okay. then I, I took All some right. notes, and then I was trying to okay. find the thing I disagreed with, and yeah. then, so the, um, I think um, when you were taught, this is the the one where um, you were talking about conflicts of interest, and you made I think the good point that uh, bias from the pharmaceutical industry is unidirectional, right? And you said there's a temptation to stake out a position beyond what you truly believe, and. Um, and my point would be that that when you have a conflict of interest, you it, it changes what you believe. It oh, it, it, go it, on. it actually yeah. affects how you I mean it check affects what what data you look at and how you filter it and and so um, it's not just that you're trying to get the click you know, this I'm talking about Yes, financial you know, people, yeah. pe well I'm I'm talking about what conflicts of interest you might have or anyone who wants to get attention and clicks and notice. And so, um, and you said you might stake out a position beyond what you really believe, and I'm saying, yeah, but you also will have different beliefs, that, and, and, you, and you can't help it, that this is everybody, everybody 
sees the world through a filter that partly depends on what they want to believe. But I'm looking at my notes, and right after you, I wrote that down because I kind of disagreed. I thought you said we were saying there's a temptation to stake out a position beyond what you truly believe, and I'm thinking, no, but I think um, that isn't all it is. And then I wrote down right afterward, she wrote, the scariest thing is that people actually believe these things. Right, yes. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah. So, so that was actually making the same point I was going to make, and then you had made it right afterwards. Tilt your microphone a little bit to your... Okay, okay perfect. Um, yeah, no, I... Um, well, I mean, what's one of the broader points I want to make? I mean, I think con- equating taking money from Celgene and people doing other sorts of scholarship that may provide revenue, I think is that's, that's the wrong road to go down in the sense that, I mean, you wrote a book on epidemiology. Okay. Uh, arguably, there are many points of view you take in that book. You could have written a book that took all of the opposite points of view, and it might have been equally successful. Um, you know, uh, sim- but you can't do that with Celgene. I mean, you can't make a career. There's no company out there that's going to pay you to, to trash Celgene. You know, there's no institution. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it really is this unidirectionality that I don't get from, I mean, same with the COVID pandemic. I think there are lots of accounts that are vehemently, you know, pro-maximal interventions, and there are lots of accounts that are vehemently against it. Both have devoted followings, and there are even some accounts that try to come in the middle, and they have a devoted following of the middle-of-the-road types, you know. Um, so I don't know. I, I've, I'll, I'll believe it. I'm looking for somebody, like, I've always wanted to do a study, and here's the kind of study I propose. You go through people's tweets in, like, first quarter 2020, and you put them in a bucket like this was a pro-mask or anti-mask person, and then you follow their research agenda to see whether or not that initial sort of anchoring, um, you know, had a had a had an impact on their research. And that's kind of sort of like an intellectual conflict of interest. But the more you sort of think about doing that, it's actually quite tricky because you don't know that they didn't do the research before they had the view. You need to sort of really sort of disentangle their prejudice from the research. Um, and also sort of like what kind of methods are you going to use? And most people who published in the space actually don't have a track record of what they thought. Um, so there's a lot of missing data. Um, it's not so easy. In contrast, like, you know, with payments from pharmaceutical firms, there's yeah. A, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's no question that intellectual conflict of interest exists. Yeah. Um, but I think, I, th- I think you said at one point that uh, – pharmaceutical industry conflict of interest was the smoking of biases or yeah. something like yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. Where, where I'm, I, you know, I assume that if you did that study, you would find a statistically significant association between positions people staked out early and the ones that ended up doing some research, you know, confirming their beliefs. But the effect size would likely not be very big. Right. You know, at least not compared to the effect sizes that are seen with. And I think that, the, you know, the biggest one, you know, the biggest one is not the randomized trials, but, you know, the, the cost-effectiveness analyses uh, or the, the, the ones where there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into Malleability. it. Malleability. Yeah, and, and the ability to, um, uh, to make sure that if you don't get the result that you want, you just don't publish it, which is why I think, I think for, for those sorts of analyses, the the odds ratio for coming out favorable to the company is close to infinite. We we published, um, I think JAMA Network Open, Haslam and I, uh, odds ratio 30. So if you, for cost effectiveness analyses in, in oncology, you were 30 full, 29 fold, 30 times odds ratio, more likely to conclude it's favorable if it's funded by the sponsor. Smoking is 20 for lung cancer and like maybe bladder cancer is like four, you know, so it even blows smoking out of the water. <laughs> yeah. um, 
but you're right. I think for a pre-existing belief, you'll probably get odds ratio 1.5 to 3.5-ish sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, so, so, I mean. High. But high, yeah. Not that high. And remember, um, you kind of correct yourself. You know, it's, it's not 30 times more likely correct. because the – the baseline rate of positive or favorable cost-effectiveness analyses is already what, high. 50, 70 percent, or something like right. that. So that's where the difference between odds and probability becomes pretty important. Yes, with a high yes baseline rate. Yeah, odds ratio 30. We'll call it that. Yeah. Yeah. Any any other notes you have on these videos? Uh, if not, then I go to my next part. Well, I kind of, I sort of have mixed feelings about the strong language you use, you know, because I, you know, I, you know, you know, in in, in there, you know, like to say, you know, public health people lied, yeah, is pretty strong, yeah, and but they did, you know, <laughs> okay, come, yeah. you know, and because I just think, you know. I feel this way about pediatrics too. People don't go into public health, they don't go into pediatrics because they want to make a bunch of money. You know, for the most part, Agreed. these are people who really, really want to do the the right thing and are trying really hard. And that may be true, you know, also for a huge portion of the pharmaceutical industry. They want to really benefit humanity. But you do have some people at the top who are really just greedy and pretty close to evil. And I I don't mind calling them out. Sure. But um and I think that you're right. Uh, we, I'll draw it. I'll, I'm happy to amend and say the average person working in sort of San Mateo public health or San Francisco public health, I think, is a pretty decent person. And they've been under siege. I mean, they, under they, siege, they've yeah. been attacked viciously. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and I worry that, you know, I mean, and we need good, smart people to do those jobs. Well, I think, well, <laughs> we can come back to that, but I think that's one of the problems in the space is um, it never paid well. And it was always thankless. And after this kind of any siege, I mean, people should not be surprised that there's mass exodus. Uh, because what are you doing it for if you're going to get threats or anything like that? Yeah. So I totally agree with that. And I think when I say they lied, I mean, I'm talking about the very most senior leaders. And I'm happy to draw that distinction because I think they did. And I guess why do I, I think they went beyond that. You know, they used, they used every tool in their tool bag you know, John Yonides at Stanford, he had videos pulled off YouTube. Um, I had preprint pulled off the preprint server. And it's, you know, it's a very sort of sense, sensorious, can, you know, environment. Um, yeah. If you published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and it was tweeted, Twitter could label it misleading. Facebook could call it wrong. And even if it said something like, you know, natural immunity provides durable protection or something like that, um, that to me is sort of all very problematic, uh, even if it was wrong. I mean, let alone the fact that it happened to be vindicated makes it even more. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. And also, you know, when you have a public health emergency, this one could have been a whole lot worse, right? Um, you know, the I think that you're very grounded in the world of of oncology and informed decision making by the patient where you tell them you know 
here's what you might gain from taking this you know, additional round of chemo, and here's what the toxicity is likely to be like, financial and, and medical. Um, and they make a decision, and that decision just affects them. Right. And, and with public health, you have this much more difficult thing, which is that individual people make decisions that not only affect them, but affect a lot of other people as well. And you have this really difficult thing, which is trying to strike a balance between um, appearing enough confident enough in the advice you are giving that people will follow it, hoping that it's right. But if you equivocate too much, even if it is right, you know, you may be interfering with its effectiveness by showing that lack of confidence. Um, so that that's that's difficult versus acting more sure than you really have a right to be mm -hmm. and then being wrong and then jeopardizing all the future public health responses to future epidemics right which, <laughs> which is a huge cost too yeah and uh and that's not an easy line so to i'm walk. just yeah i'm just appreciating that that's that's difficult that um you know we saw this with uh you know the the scientists and climate change and the, the um, IPCC, where um, they're doing the appropriate scientific thing and sort of expressing uncertainty and confidence intervals and equivocating, and then that's interpreted as, oh, nobody really knows what's going on. And so there may be a role for um, expressing more confidence in the recommendations you're giving than might be warranted um, but it's risky in order to get people to follow the advice if you right. really think it's right. But well, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's risky. And this is also true, you know, for, yeah. for doc, you know, there are some doctors yes. who are such strong believers yeah, salesmen for in the treatment yeah. they're giving. Right. And actually their patients can do better. I mean, it actually can, <laughs> yeah. oh, right. they it sell can the actually effects. help. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think they, I mean, two things that come to mind is one Imperial College London model was presented unwaveringly this is what will happen if you don't take dramatic action one million dead in you know 12 weeks or something like that uh i think that estimate was probably wrong you know um and they definitely on issues like you know masking and etc they definitely took very strong stances but my question is this and how you think about it i think the view the role of science and maybe put it away from public health for a second but science i think science articulates the trade-offs you want to open schools, this is how many extra infections you're going to get. You want to open schools? No, this is how many infections you might get with a range from yes, right. you know, very little to very high. Right? Yes, that's, right. That's the best we can do. Yeah. Uh, and here's what you might gain in literacy, et cetera, and upward mobility, et cetera. Uh, you don't want to open schools. This is what it will look like. Um, but it's the body politic. I mean, only people, even like the mechanic, the, you know, the gym teacher, the doctor, like it's up to everybody to decide what they want to pursue. And I guess I think that one of the big mistakes was that the scientists usurped the conversation. They inserted their own values into that proposition. For that school closure thing, the truth was, uh, you know, the, we had estimates all through 2020 that were much less concerning than what people thought and imagined, and yet we couldn't do anything. And, yeah. yeah. And the other thing which we see in medicine as well, which is that adverse effects that come farther down the road yeah. that you as the clinician prescribing the treatment are never going to see and feel bad about I mean, i'm talking about I'm, yeah. yeah i'm talking about the the um, collateral damage the 
yeah, the um, educational inequities and, and costs in terms of socialization and, and just from, from missing school, you know, that, that, that's far down the road. Um, you know, just like you know, the cancers that come 10 years after your, your CT scan. You know, the person prescribing the CT scan is not gonna see that. So, and they're hard to quantify and you know, I think, um, but I, I guess I still think that you know, people were, were doing their best. Yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I and, think that, uh, I guess I'd say, the average person, I'll grant you, doing their best and a good person. The leadership, I think, I don't know, I think there needs to be some accountability and we'll see. We'll see where the, I mean, you know, it's not, uh, I guess it's the job of 20 years of scholarship to build the case. Who should have done what, when, and who made mistakes. Um, well, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> okay, here's what I wanted to ask you about though. Um, we can come back to this topic too, but what I wanted to ask you about was you know, we, we both teach the clinical epidemiology to the medical students, and we were talking recently, you know, and I think we both agree it's like the most important thing you learn in medical school, but I wonder if you might explain to the listener, why do you feel that way? You know, why is it so important as a doctor that I know clinical epidemiology? What the hell is it? Why do I, why do I need to know that? Well, um, so first in terms of, of what is it, it's sort of applying the methods of epidemiology, which were sort of developed in populations to identify risk factors for uh, diseases and, and quantify, um, quantify risk in, in clinical situations. And I think it's most important for leaders <laughs> um, in medicine to know clinical epidemiology people who are creating guidelines and reviewing the literature and um, you know putting together the um, the the order sets and the you know the, the things in the electronic medical record that actually change behavior. And designing and running the trials. And designing and running trials, right. right. So the so your average doctor needs to keep up with the literature um, but you know being really good at critical appraisal and and um, understanding statistics and probability and stuff like that. I don't know that it's not necessar that necessary. I mean, I can tell you, you 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 do pretty well with up to date. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm I I think it's very satisfying to realize that there is a sound mathematical basis behind decisions about diagnosis and treatment. That there's a math, and, and, and it's one of the reasons why it's important is that it's humbling, and one of the reasons why it's important for our medical students to learn it is that they can realize that any attending or resident who tells them, this is why you have to do it this way, um, a one-size-fit-all approach without addressing the patient's values and their relative weighting of different types of, of adverse outcome, you, you, know, you know, it just can't be right. And so I think um, it's useful to know what information you would need in order to make a rational decision. And to the extent that you don't have that, it just might give you a little bit more humility. But then you're back to being the kind of doctor who 
kind of shrugs and says, I don't know, what do you want to do to the patient? And right. some patients don't like that. I'm going to pass the buck <laughs> entirely. Uh, well, you know, maybe I'll take a stronger thesis than yours, which is that, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that the people who definitely need to know it are the people setting the guidelines, writing the trials, et cetera, like without a doubt. And my worry is that they don't know it, and that's why we get so many debacles. But for the average practicing doctor, I guess I'd make the case in two ways why I think that they need to know at least a little bit, although I worry they're not getting as much as they need to. One would be that, you know, maybe this affects oncology more than pediatrics, but the amount of new stuff, people trying to hijack their brains and their prescribing pad is unprecedented. And pair that with an environment, you, you say up-to-date is good, but un unfortunately the reality is up-to-date doesn't comment on many of the things in oncology. And in oncology, maybe it's not always that good because it's written by somebody who doesn't know anything too. Um, and so it's like often the practicing doctor has to make sense of like a new drug, a new trial, a new study with very little equipment to sort of sort that out. Um, that's one reason. And the second reason is let's just take this colonoscopy thing. This is why I think a nice example. Uh, you know, we have the Nordic randomized control trial colonoscopy, and it showed a reduction in colorectal cancer incidence that, you know, obviously there's an initially an increase in incidence and then a reduction in incidence, as to be expected from clipping polyps. Um, and it showed uh, in intention to treat no CRC death, but in instrumental variable, no CRC death, but in per protocol, yes, some modest thing. Um, but its reception is very different on either side of the pond. In, the, in Europe, I think the reception has mostly been, this was a nice piece of work, and thank you for doing this. In this side of the pond, it's like, go to hell, and you really are killing people with your you know, rhetoric. Like from the GI community, the American GI Association has some statement that says like they strongly disagree with Nordic's findings. And, <laughs> yeah. How do you disagree with findings? <laughs> 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 oh, well, they, they have lots of excuses. They say the, the adenoma detection rate was too low, but they're using like 2022 yeah. ADR rate versus the trial was run, you know, 2014. Yeah. And so, of course, it's changed over time. Two, they're using an ADR rate in, an, in a practice where you've financially incentivized people to get it up. You know, okay, so it's, not, it's like you're comparing apples and oranges. Um, okay, I guess what I want to say is that the virtue of clinical epi in this situation is that it makes the average Joe less vehement. Like the average doctor is less, I think the average GI doctor is very, very certain this is the best screening mode. Well, yeah, and, and, and mammographers, uh, course, you yeah. know, um, for mammography and so on. I mean. Uh, what I always like is that, you know, the only person who understands cancer, principles of cancer screening when it comes to the colon is the GI doctor from the yeah. <laughs> mammography is the radiologist. Yeah. And in, in prostate cancer, of course, is a urologist. You know, it's yeah. very interesting how the expertise varies. Um, Okay, so my argument would be the reason we teach them is one, new information, two, that it makes them a little less vehement. Like the, the more well, that's what I was talking about with humility too. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. Um, it instills humility in the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's you know that's important, um, but it's it's also you know um, in terms of I mean I I do think that the field of oncology is changing a lot more rapidly than pediatrics, at least of pediatric, you know, I, I took care of newborns and, um, and I took care of newborns who weren't very sick. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, 1800 grams and up and 34 weeks and up. And, and things didn't change that fast <laughs> in that field. I see, in that field, right. Um, okay, now maybe to come back to the public health thing for a second, because I want to pick your brain. 
I mean, your point's well taken, that it is a different sort of business. You gotta consider the implications for everybody. Um, but the evidence generation is one of the things that is a stone in my shoe. Yeah, so I have to, I, have to, I mean, I guess um, I, I agree that there should have been, but there, that you point out there are lots of different things someone could have done trials on. You right. have different types of masks. You Correct. Masks or no so masks. And, no matter and, where you and, are on the spectrum, and, how much and, you love them, there's something you can and, do. And this is, I think, a problem with our, our research enterprise in general is that most research gets funded because someone has a financial interest in the result. And, um, and I don't know how set up CDC is to, you know, give contracts to do randomized trials. I don't think that's something they've really done a lot of. You know, that, 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 the, the, the idea that we have an epidemic, we need to have a system in place to get rapid answers to the questions that are gonna come up during this epidemic. We need, you know, basically, yeah. you know, the, the, yeah. the infrastructure right. to, to the do rapid trials, get the answer, and then go to the next question I don't know that we have that. Know, we should, but, but you know, that, right. that, I that, that's, that's I think a, a that's one, one of the, the many holes in our public health infrastructure yeah. from being sure. underfunded chronically uh, for decades. But it's interesting to me that like when they need to pull the battleship outside of New York City Harbor with extra hospital beds, they can marshal those resources. But running a randomized trial, they can't seem to. And then different skill sets. Different skills. And then well, now her excuse is not that not that they didn't have the resources, but that they're was no equipoise. That's, <laughs> that's what she does say. Okay, but um, yeah. Okay, this is this is what I want to ask you about. Um, I think you're right. They don't have that. They don't have it. To some degree, to me, it's sort of begging the question, like why don't they have it? I think there's a there's some there's a cognitive block in people's minds. Randomized trials were invented in what, let's say, 1940s with MRC and streptozoin, or people debate the exact first randomized trial. You know, do you consider LIND, it, it's controlled, but it's not technically randomized, and maybe MRC in the 1940s is the first randomized trial. But to me, what's fascinating is, you know, the ancient Greeks didn't do it, and uh, the Egyptians didn't do it, and they so easily could have taken a field, divided it into 100 parcels, and tested different fertilizer and water and had factorial design. Um, and so I guess what I wanna say is that I think there's something about human beings that we just don't like it. Like, well, especially right. when we're scared, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is, I think, part of our, our drift towards fascism. When people are scared, they're seeking someone who has the answers, you right. know? And, and randomized trials are like wide open admitting that you don't know an answer to something. Right. And that makes people uncomfortable. The irony, though, is that doing them <laughs> is the best thing you can that's do. That's how you can find the answer. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's part of the root. Um, okay, that's my one public health beef. The second public health beef is I think in many ways it was cruel, Tom. I mean, the things that really broke my heart were, uh, you know, in 2020, there the are people who couldn't, we couldn't get people to be able to, be with their family member when they died in the hospital. Yeah, that was horrible. That was horrible, and it also, I just think. And that was probably over. Yes, that's what I want to say. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and that, yeah. And I, I mean, that's sort of a I deep can't. philosophical question, which is, you know, what, what are we even doing in this line of work if, if you're willing to cut your, own, cut your own face off? You know, you're willing to make such a horrific sacrifice, it makes you worry, like, what are we doing it for? <laughs> you know, uh, so that was a break point to me. I know people who, 
you know, they're like, they're like the kid was getting chemo and only the mother or the father could be in there, but not both at the same time. And like a brother and sister couldn't go. And Tom, we still have this policies, like they still have these like crazy draconian visitor requirements. And I'm like, what are we even doing? Um, yeah. So, you know, timeless or anyway. Okay, but um, coming back to, to what we wanted to talk about. Um, you know, cancer screening, okay. There's a big push right now in a bill. They wanna get that blood-based thing funded by Medicare. I think it's a problem. <laughs> I think oh, the, I forgot what it's called. The uh, there's Grail. There's you know, yeah, 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 yeah. It's this uh, what is it? Multi-cancer blood-based right. omics test. Right. Um. Well, I mean, I think Medicare shouldn't cover it until there's evidence <laughs> that it works and doesn't do harm. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because That's I was watching your YouTube. Do you watch the commercials to your YouTubes? It very. It, it actually <laughs> depends on the user. It'll be different oh, on your computer than okay. mine. Well, what are you getting? The, the commercial they showed me right at the beginning of one of your YouTubes was for some new, advanced, sort of futuristic uh, healthcare office where you go in and you stand on a scale and it infrared measures a heat map of your body <laughs> and you get your oxygen saturation and they draw your blood and, and give you answers in 12 minutes and so on. It's a very interesting commercial. <laughs> I wonder what it means that they're showing that to me. That's probably just my age. No, I don't know. Maybe it is related to the content and also um, the user. But I've definitely watched one of my own videos, and it was critical of a specific pharmaceutical drug. And then the ad was for the drug. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. You know, so the algorithm's not perfect. Um, but well, maybe it is. Maybe they felt that this is just the place we need to advertise to <laughs> counteract your biases. Now I, of course, I paid for YouTube premium so I don't get ads. I can just watch ah. as much as, because I watch a lot of other stuff on there. I see. So you've been doing this a while, teaching epidemiology. I'm curious, the way in which you explain a concept, has, does that change over time? And a corollary, some people say that there are many epidemiologists who really, really understand it. They just can't explain it. Do you think that's true? Well, the second thing is definitely tr true. Well, at least I think they understand it. I assume they understand it. I know they can't explain it. <laughs> you know they can't explain it. <laughs> you hope yeah. they understand it. Um, well, so it turns out that in 1983, in the fall, when I was uh, a student at the School of Public Health in Berkeley, I took a course on computer-assisted instruction and wrote a uh, program in BASIC <laughs> to teach about sensitivity and specificity and predictive value. And for dichotomous tests, that really hasn't changed much. Right. Um, likelihood ratios came after that, and interval likelihood ratios came after that. So, um, and, you know, I guess I got better at finding examples in the literature that were relevant where if you knew something that we can teach you, you can get something more out of a study than if you don't. Um, so more examples, but, and there's a lot of new content, but some of the old content, I don't think I'm teaching that much differently from before. I see. I wonder if you'd feel differently if we had videotapes of you doing it, because I think that's one of the things YouTube gives you. I can literally go watch how I would say well, something. Well, yeah, but I have, I have the, uh, you have I a, mean, I have like the problem. I mean, I've been teaching clinical epi for years, so we have the old problems and the new problems. I this see. Was, it's funny because um, this, this, this program I wrote in 1983 talked about uh, a doctor who cared for 
patients with diarrhea whose name was Lou Stools. <laughs> and he developed a test for cholera where it developed a ring around it. And he called it the ring around the cholera test. <laughs> and um, and today's med students never saw those. I don't know. You may be too young to have seen those commercials for whisk. Whisk, whisk was a liquid cleaner. laundry detergent. Oh, okay. And, you know, a, a housewife would take out her laundry and there would be a ring around the uh, collar and these little animated somethings would taunt her. Ring around the collar, ring around the collar. So that was the origin of the ring around the collar test, which in the 1980s, everybody knew that commercial. Sure, but now nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> now, right, that, 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 um, that joke is now lost on people because they haven't <laughs> seen that commercial. I see. So you've updated it for these topical things. Well, I, yeah, I've updated it, but I haven't come up with another good name for the test. I wonder if you've changed because I, 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 I think that, and maybe the written word is different than the verbal, but I think the way I talk and the way I try to explain things has changed a lot even in the course of years. And it would be interesting if we had videos of Tom Newman you know, 20 years ago doing it. I'm trying to think how far back they go. They're probably videos from 10 or 15 years ago. We should watch them. <laughs> you should put them on a YouTube channel. That'll be, <laughs> that'll be a coveted thing. Okay, the last thing uh, I want to ask you, and then we'll talk about it. Right, yeah. Okay. We're, 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 we're almost out of time. But the last thing I want to ask you, you know, in one of the classes we were talking about, or we were teaching, you introduced this idea of, like, the threshold to act. What do you call it? That Treatment threshold? The treatment threshold. Yeah. Okay. Tell the listeners, what is a treatment threshold? And why does it vary based on clinical situation? Well, I mean, the basic idea is we have these tests and history and physical and so on. And if you apply them, you know what you're doing. You end up with what could be a pretty good estimate of the probability that someone has some particular disease. And we keep it really simple where we just, we consider one disease and we consider there's two possibilities. Either you have it or you don't. And we consider there is some probability of having it above which the right decision is to treat and below which the right decision is not to treat. And that probability or that treatment threshold depends on the relative costs of the two kinds of mistakes you can make, mm -hmm. failing to treat someone who has it mm -hmm. and treating someone who doesn't have it. Right. And if, if it's a really, really bad thing to miss and the treatment is not that, you know, that toxic or dangerous, oh, yes, then right. we might be willing to treat someone who only has a 10% chance of having the disease or a 5% chance or something in order to avoid missing any. Right. But if it's a toxic treatment or one that doesn't have that much benefit, then we really want to make sure someone has the disease before we treat it. So that's what the treatment threshold is. And, and, and yeah. so it could vary from person to person because there are some people for whom, you know, the side effects or the, you know, the, the possibility of um, unnecessary treatment is bothers them more than other people, or maybe they're at higher risk of toxicity from the drug or something. And uh, it's such a nice way to think about it, but there's some great examples that I think of. One I was telling you was ATRA for APL, so we have this sort of common leukemia, AML. Very rarely it has a unique translocation where it actually responds to sort of retinoic acid. And so uh, we give retinoic acid, and uh, if you give the retinoic acid wrongly to somebody with the other kind of leukemia, there's really not much downside, you know? Um, and, uh, and so that is a situation where in the middle of the night, you kind of are on the fence. You say, oh, better give it a shot and give it. And I also remember how the surgeons would say that if you only remove healthy appendices, you're not doing enough appendectomies. <laughs> um, 
to I mean, get if you don't remove any healthy appendices. Right. If you do, yeah. yeah. If you if you don't remove any healthy appendices, you're not doing enough appendectomies. Um, and meanwhile, though, when it comes to like giving chemotherapy for metastatic solid tumors, unless there's like tissue confirmed biopsy, I think most of us were reluctant, even when it's sort of almost obvious that it is cancer, just because the downside of chemotherapy for being wrong would be horrific. Um, any good examples come from pediatrics? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the, my, my area is newborns, mm-hmm. right? And newborns can get very sick very rapidly with bacterial infections. And so, and there are certain, you know, there's known risk factors, like if, if the membranes were ruptured for a long time and the baby's premature and the mother had a high fever, those are all put the baby at, at higher risk of infection. So we developed, uh, um, you know, a prediction rule to try to estimate the probability of infection. Um, but the treatment threshold for that, this was, this was um, you know, work done with Northern California Kaiser, mm-hmm. um, I think they said it a probability higher than four per thousand. Wow. So willing to, to treat a whole lot of babies unnecessarily to avoid missing one. I see. That's a great example. All right, let's talk about what we want to talk about. We'll turn this off. Thanks, Tom, for doing this. <laughs>